Welcome to my study on understanding the book of Acts. These messages were given live during my regular Sunday morning services. Now, while each of these messages are able to help you as a standalone message, I recommend listening from the beginning because they do build on one another. Now, I pray these help you in your journey of understanding God's word. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Let's get to the message. Do me a favor and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. I got a couple of things that we're going to be talking about. Um, We're going to continue on in our uh, our process of understanding the Book of Acts um, as we walk through this year's series uh, titled "Walk with Me." Um, I had a very interesting phone call earlier this week uh, that actually had me um, like tearing up in my office. It was it was pretty awesome. Um, uh, the person who called me knows who they are, and uh, it wasn't a bad call, it was a fantastic call, and it was really a thank you for <sighs> helping them understand how to share their faith in a logical, meaningful, clear way. Uh, and it came at absolutely the perfect time for me, and I've been kind of hanging on to it, waiting to, waiting to share it. And um, it's really interesting when you're moving, when you're in a situation like this, and you're trying to pastor a church in this way, as, as disconnected as we are, um, it, it can you can feel like you're not connecting. You can feel like you're, you don't have any impact. But when you receive encouragement like that, it's pretty it's pretty amazing to see, um, uh, and I'm very thankful for it. So today we're going to be kind of moving along in that in that vein. Um, this year, remember the the idea of walk with me isn't. Uh, it has one goal, uh, and, and the goal is to help us all learn not only this, this mysterious thing we call our Bible, but how to approach it, how to read it, how to understand it, and more importantly, how to share it. That's the idea of this, and we can all walk on this journey together. Uh, and I thought the best place to start was going to be the book of Acts, and so that's where we are at the moment. Um, the title of today's message is Function Over Form. Function Over Form. And uh, some things to think about throughout throughout our world, there are a lot of places and a lot of reasons where we divide. We divide on all kinds of things. We divide over politics. We divide over economics, um, and a few thousand other things that we give way too much authority into in our lives. But ironically, within the divisions, if you look at the reasons why people divide inside those divisions, there are usually places of commonality that should actually bring us together, but they don't. Uh, and that's because we've put the authority, the emphasis, in the wrong place within that particular conversation. That's what I want to be talking about today. Um, when we follow our differing opinions on how something should be done over why it's being done or what it is we're supposed to accomplish, that's typically where we end up dividing. Another way to look at it is we place too much value on form over that of function. So let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean by that. Um, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that our government loves to complicate the simple, right? Let's take something that is really, really simple, and let's try to make it as complicated and overly regulated as possible. One of the ways this was explained to me a long time ago by a good friend was, if it's not broke, fix it till it is, right? And that seems to be the way that uh, a, lot of our, a lot of our government tends to work. Um, now, if you think about this, can we all agree, or I, would, I should say, would you all agree, that it's very important for us to feed the homeless and the starving? 
Can, can we all agree on that? That feeding the homeless and the starving is a good thing. It's something that should be important to each of us. It's something that should have value. Um, and it's something that we shouldn't actually ever argue or divide over, right? It's just a natural human thing. We should feed the homeless. Right now in the United States, there are over seven cities, including New York City, where giving food to the homeless is actually illegal. It's actually illegal. They have passed laws making this illegal. Now, the reasons for the laws, I honestly find sad. The idea that you can't make a sandwich in your home and go out to the street and give it to someone who's homeless is idiotic in in, in my mind. Um, But now you think about this. If we all agree that feeding the homeless is important, where's the issue? Here are some of the issues that have caused that division. The first one um, is that uh, the food may not be nutritionally balanced because, you know, things you bring from your house don't have nutrition labels. So you might be bringing something to someone who's homeless that has too many calories in it or too high of a sugar or maybe it's too fattening. Uh, I don't know if any of the people who pass these laws have ever been hungry, but I don't think the people who are hungry care, right? Another issue is that these, the, the food that might be handed out may not have been prepared in a fully licensed and inspected kitchen because, you know, the last thing you would want to do is make, you know, hand someone a cheese sandwich uh, in a kitchen that wasn't properly inspected or licensed. And what you end up with at the end of the day are two sides of our government bureaucracy arguing over how to regulate giving food to the hungry. And they divide up into their political camps and they yell at each other about how they're the only ones who care about the homeless and everybody else hates the homeless and they want them to just starve and they keep this fighting going on and what ends up happening is the homeless and starving are still homeless and starving because we've divided over how and we've lost sight of the function. We've divided over the form, we've lost sight of the function. And it's pretty easy, if you think about our world and our government, it's pretty easy to point out examples like this, and you could talk about them all day long, and we might even say something like, yeah, but that's the government for you. But in reality, the church has very much the same problem. If you look at things within the family of God that cause us to separate into our own ideological camps, we call them denominations because it sounds more spiritual than ideological camp, they very much fall along the same lines. Let me give you a couple of examples. Worship. Worship's a great example of this. Everyone agrees, all believers agree, that worshiping the Lord in song and melody and rhythm is a natural, very fundamental part of our faith, that we all should do it. It's it's clearly in the Bible. It's, 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 It's there. It's not that big of a deal. But we divide over the form. Not the function. We all agree that the function is there, but we divide over the form. So let me give you a couple of examples here. Some groups think that certain instruments should not be used because they're not listed in the Bible. Now, I find that very ironic because usually the groups that fall into this category are more than willing to use pianos and organs, which, by the way, are also not listed in the Bible and they didn't exist in biblical times. That's for another conversation. Some would say that you can use a guitar, but not an electric guitar. Or you can use a cajon or a box drum or a djembe, but you can't use a drum set. And heaven forbid 
electric drums, because those are straight from Satan. It's okay if you read the words to the music out of a hymnal, but it's wrong if you read them off of a projector screen, because somehow the spirituality leaves if it's projected on a wall for easy use. And the list of reasons why our worship is better and their worship is not, and our worship is more pure and their worship isn't, goes on and on and on. And the church divides over form instead of unifying over the function. Another example that I think is actually very prevalent in in the church today is communion. We all agree that communion is an important part of our faith. We also all agree that Jesus commands us to do this in remembrance of him. The function isn't disputed. The form is. You think about this. How many churches are divided over this issue? And, div- and I mean like vehemently divided. If you think about this, some churches use grape juice. Other churches use wine only because the Bible uses wine. Some churches will use bread. Other churches will use only unleavened bread. And then other churches use those little wafers that I'm relatively sure were actually made in the first century and have been sitting in a cave ever since drying out. Some churches pass the elements out. They have you sit and they pass the elements out to you. Others have you line up so the minister actually gives them to you as you're, as you're coming up. Some of, us, some of them, like us, we have it set out and during a portion of the service, you go up and get it when you feel ready. Who's right and who's wrong? Is there a right and is there a wrong? Now, when you're dealing with the question, who's right and who's wrong, when it comes to communion, I think my best answer is all of us and none of us. We're all wrong and we're all right. Because in the Bible, the form of communion, ironically, is never described outside of the Last Supper, which, by the way, was a part of the dinner. We don't often see that happening within the church, having communion being part of the dinner. The form of communion is an area that we divide in. But we all agree that the function is there, that the function is real, that the function is something that we should all pay attention to. Now, you may not know this, but over the years, several people have actually left our church because of the way we do communion. I've always found that interesting. I've never felt it necessary to argue with someone over that because that's a conviction that they have to, they have to follow. I can't, I can't change that for them. But there are dozens of practices within the Bible, especially the New Testament, where the emphasis is placed on the form over the function. And I think this is actually backwards. And when it comes to understanding and, and uh, 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 interpreting our Bible and interpreting what God wants us to do and how he wants us to relate the things in our Bible, if we put too much emphasis on the form, but we ignore the importance of the function, I think we get things out of order and it becomes very easy for the, for the teachings of Scripture to become wedges that divide believers instead of the glue that really holds us together. Now, while form is an important aspect of our faith, faith form is, uh, because form is usually what draws us to something. If you think about this, when we, we feel a song, it feels good to us, and we, we like that. That's a form. We, we, you see a car that you like, you like the form. We, we tend to be drawn to forms, 
But the form is not the thing that sustains you. It's actually the function. As believers, we can't allow ourselves to become so wrapped up in the form that we forget the function. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge the fact that the form is an important part of our faith because we develop a comfort with the form. We feel safe with the form. Things that are familiar are things that will actually hold us in place. If you you ever find someone who actually um, really is resistant to change, it's not that they don't like new things. It's that there are certain parts of their life where they have developed a comfort, a familiarity with that, and changing it creates a problem. They don't know what to do with this newness, even though the function is still the same, the form is foreign to them, so they're not exactly sure how how they're supposed to respond or act. If you've ever gone to a friend's church service that might be a different denomination than you, and it's not something you've ever been in, it can be very disorienting. I remember the first time I ever went to a Catholic wedding, Samantha thought it was hilarious because I had no clue what was going on. I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, like, everyone's kneeling. And by the time I get down to the kneeler, everyone's back up in their chair. And it was like this, this weird tug and, tug and pull. And then at some point in the service, the minister said, and now we will all greet each other with a kiss. And I was like, oh, no, you ain't. Samantha thought it was funny. I'm panicking because I didn't know what to do. It was actually the first time I'd actually sat in a Catholic service. Uh, I found it very interesting and rather enlightening, but off-putting at the same time. (coughs) Excuse me. The book of Acts is a great place to find these examples. To find these places where we get stuck on the form... And we forget all too often, not always, but all too often, the intended function. And within the charismatic church, I think the most, dis- the most divisive place we do this is in spiritual gifts, especially in Acts chapter 2, which is what we're going to deal with today. Now, I want to briefly look at this passage in Acts chapter 2 that I think captures this problem beautifully. Um, and I want to emphasize that I'm going to be examining the text itself, okay? Uh, As we get started, I want you to understand I believe in tongues. I have no problem with tongues. I think tongues is a vital part of our life. Where I have the problem is how it tends to be pushed within the charismatic church. Just to make this clear, we are a charismatic church. As I said last week, if we are not willing to first examine our motives and our behaviors, we have no right and no, no standing on, uh, on which to evaluate those of another. So we need to first evaluate ourselves. So all this year, when I'm going to be looking at practices and principles, I'm always going to be directing it back to our own Circle of influence, I guess, is the right way to say it. And a lot of you are going to see this. And as I'm talking today, I'm sure there's going to be some stuff that maybe some of you have thought, wow, I've never actually looked at it that way. And um, I might actually even offend a couple of people with the way that I'm going to approach this. But please understand, all I'm using is the text. Okay? All I'm using is the text. I promise you I'm not going to veer from the text. But this section in in, uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, I believe is one of the most misused and abused sections of Scripture within our charismatic side of the faith. As we walk through, it's important to remember the question that I put to you last week, which is, is the book of Acts telling us what we should be doing and how we should be doing it, or is it telling us what was done and how they did it? 
That is a very, very important distinction to make because one is a set of rules and standards and the other one is something trying to guide and direct us but not giving us the absolute standard for all church for all time. That is a very important perspective to have. So when we start right off, we have the arrival of the Holy Spirit. we got the day of Pentecost. At the end of the book of Luke and at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the promised helper arrives, the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost shows up and bang, we got Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. It reads like this. When the day of Pentecost had fully come and they were uh, all in one accord in one place and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Uh, Then uh, there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is very important part here and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so is there any doubt in anyone's mind that the Holy Spirit has arrived? No. It's very obvious in the text that the Holy Spirit has arrived and that the gifts have been being, are now being poured out among the believers. Is there any doubt in anyone's mind that the gift of tongues is part of that manifestation? No, there shouldn't be any doubt in your mind. It's right there. And they are indeed speaking in tongues. These are very plainly visible. And in the text, really, there's no way to honestly argue this. That needs to be made very clear. Okay? Now let's ask a couple of questions within the text. Does it tell us what tongues sounded like? No. Actually, nowhere in Acts chapter 2 does it tell us what tongues sounded like. We're going to get to what it actually does tell us here in a minute. Does it sound like what we know as tongues today? I tend to believe yes, and I'm going to get to that here in a couple of minutes. Some argue that it's a, that it's a series of earthly languages. I held that view for a little while, but um, after series, a series of study, um, you can't stay in that position for very long once you actually look into the bulk of the, the writings on tongues. Now, is the form of tongues described at all? Only partially, very partially, but not actually in a way that is helpful to us as charismatics. The way tongues is actually described in Acts chapter 2 actually creates problems for us as charismatics, especially the typical charismatic viewpoint. So if we continue on, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 5, it reads like this, going through verse 13. It says, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the sound of the rushing wind, the multitude came together and were confused because, listen, everyone heard them. This is so important. Everyone heard them, meaning each individual person heard all of the guys speaking in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, look, are these not those uh, who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Perga and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. 
So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And then there's that wonderful line in 13. Others mocked, saying, they're drunk. They're full of new wine. Layman's terms, they're drunk. Now this passage, does it tell us what tongues the gift sounded like? No, it doesn't. We are given a small idea that it was probably a very strange sound, which also is in line with Paul's description of it. If you go over to 1 Corinthians 14, 2, it says this, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. Now, that's very interesting, because what we have in Acts chapter 2 is people understanding them, which I think is very, very telling. What we are told in Acts chapter 2 is how it was understood, and this is what causes the problems in the charismatic circle. Those who were listening from all various nations, there were over 16 different languages listed in that passage, over 16 different languages. They all heard each of them in their own earthly language from the text there are two possibilities. Either the disciples were all speaking different earthly languages and the people listening heard their language coming from one of them. I do not believe that that's the case. Or two, God gave the unsaved listeners the gift of interpretation. This is where I actually, this is what I, I actually believe and I'm going to get to that and, and why in just a second. Now, you think about this. If the disciples were all speaking earthly languages, which is what a lot of denominations believe and teach right now, then what we know as tongues today has to be declared wrong, okay? And we need to stop and ask some very serious questions about those who push tongues, especially those who push tongues as proof of salvation. This becomes very problematic, Now, like I said, I do not believe that this is the case, and I don't believe it because Paul simply says no one understands them without an interpreter. That tells me that this is not an earthly language. He also calls it the tongues of men and angels, which tells me it's not an earthly language. Now, if God gave the gift of interpretation to those listening, which is what the text indicates, this is a problem. Because at that point, the gifts of the Spirit have no bearing on salvation at all. Please hear me with this. I know, this is, I know some of you are probably thinking, no, this can't be true. The gifts of the Spirit are only given out to the saved. This is a problem because it clearly says all those who were there, Jews and devout men, not converted believers, were hearing a language not understandable by normal humans The only option is that they were given the gift of interpretation. There's no other option that's there. And Scripture does say that the gifts of the Spirit are giving out according to the Spirit along the lines of the will of the Spirit, which means God determines who gets the gift, when it is applied, and what it's for. And if you think about some of the gifts that are listed in Scripture, like administration and helps, I know plenty of unsafe people who have what I would consider a gift of of administration. They seem to be very helpful. I don't know if these are completely just limited to the church. 
which causes us a problem because those who say that the gift of tongues is proof of salvation, you have an issue at this point because that doesn't seem to be what the scriptures are indicating. Now, why do I believe that unbelievers were given the gift of interpretation? It comes from 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. It says this, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation to all men. He who speaks in the tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more so that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless indeed, now listen, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Paul describes tongues as a language that makes no sense unless it's interpreted. Unless the gift of interpretation is there. Now, if you translate that over to Acts chapter 2, that really only leaves one option. That God granted to those unbelievers who were there the gift of interpretation. And that actually lines up very well with what we know about the gifts of the Spirit, that they are there to open the door for the gospel of salvation, which is exactly what it did in Acts chapter 2. Now, either way you look at it, the way that tongues tends to be taught today is very, very difficult to justify, and it's called into question by Scripture itself. So let me give you a couple of examples here. I want to show you a video from a man named Sid Roth. Some of you probably know who he is. And this is a video clip from TBN. This was a number of years ago. And what he's doing in this video clip is he's claiming to be able to teach people how to speak in tongues. Now, I want you to keep in mind a couple of things. That when the Apostle Paul teaches us about the corporate church and the use of tongues, here's what we're told. 1 Corinthians 14, 23 through 28 reads like this. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, they will, not, uh, will they not say, you are out of your mind? But if, we, but if all prophesy, an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes, he is convinced by all, he is uh, uh, convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all, uh, let all things be done for edification. For if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, very important line here, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere are we told that tongues can be taught or learned. It's a gift. You cannot learn a gift. A, the gifts of the Spirit are not a skill you acquire. They are a gift given to you by the Spirit as God sees it. Scripture clearly indicates that. But now listen to this and listen very carefully to what he's doing and how Paul described it. If you've never prayed in tongues, if you follow my instructions, the anointing is here to do the rest. I can't do it for you, but I can tell you how to pray in supernatural languages. 
So you start speaking like little baby words and say them as fast as you humanly can when I begin to pray. And when the supernatural will become natural as you take a step, Peter, of faith. Raise your hands to holy God and begin to pray in a language you've never been instructed. If you don't move your tongue and speak, no one else will do anything. I know you don't know what to say. Make real nonsense syllables up. They're not nonsense. But if the first words coming out of your spirit, do it faster. I said faster. I said faster. Okay. Now, please understand, I'm not trying to make fun of anyone when I show you that video. And believe me, there are way stranger examples that I could have put up. Um, Samantha talked me into being kinder and just making it very, very simple uh, when I was originally putting this together. That's why I love her. <laughs> um, and remember, I don't have a problem with the gift of tongues. I believe in the gift of tongues. I believe it's necessary and it's important for our faith that what you just saw is not the gift of tongues. What you just saw is a sham. It's, it's even hard to describe how, uh, how saddening it is when I see something like that. When Paul says, if all of you guys are screaming and speaking in tongues, new people are going to come into the church and they're going to think that you're out of your mind. Now, a very interesting thing is in a lot of the world today, the charismatic church is viewed as out of its mind. You want to know why people look at us like we're crazy? That's why. Because this is something that we, that we think we're actually doing for some godly reason. That was not tongues. You cannot be taught how to apply a gift of the Spirit. You can't be taught to speak in tongues any more than you can taught to, be, to, to prophesy or to heal. There's no magic formula. It's a gift given by God, by His Spirit, for His purposes, as the Spirit wills. Even if you go back to Acts chapter 2, it says the gift was given as the Spirit gave them utterance. The question needs to be asked, where does this kind of behavior, this sort of out of control view of the gift come from? And it comes from verse 13. Acts chapter 2, verse 13 says, Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. How many of you ever heard of the phrase, drunk in the spirit? The justification for that phrase comes from this verse. That when the spirit lands, you'll speak with other tongues, and you'll look and act like you're drunk. Which is not what the text says at all. They're mocking these guys saying, obviously, there's got to be something wrong with these guys. Now, a long time ago, there was another movement through the, whole, through, uh, through the, the charismatic church where uh, people were trying to teach, again, trying to teach large numbers of people how to speak in tongues. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this or heard this, 
um, but maybe you've been around long enough, but basically it came down to this, that if you wanted to speak in tongues well, and you didn't know how to do it, all you needed to do was say this phrase over and over again really fast. I'm not making this up. I've held on to this for a long time. Some of you have heard me bring this up uh, a number of times before, but the phrase is really simple. Untie my bow tie. Who stole my Honda? I wish I was kidding. I wish I was kidding. And every time I hear someone trying to, to teach speaking in tongues, that is all that comes into my mind. You've got to be kidding me. Untie my bow tie. Who's on my Honda? Really, this is going to be the language of God. This is the language of, of men and angels. This is a spiritual, a spiritual language that God gave me to edify. I don't think so. What you can see from the video and what you can see from a lot of the expressions of this gift today is that there is a huge emphasis on form and almost no emphasis on function. Huge emphasis on what it's supposed to look like, what you're supposed to sound like. I actually watched a YouTube video the other day, a guy trying to teach people how to enunciate tongues. How to enunciate tongues properly. I don't understand where people get it in their head that this is okay. Because scripture very clearly tells us it's not. You cannot be taught a gift of the Spirit. You open yourself up and it's given as the Spirit deems. And as I said before, if you ever wondered why the charismatic church is looked at like we're nuts, it's because we put so much emphasis on what things look like and so little emphasis on what they're for. We concentrate on form over function. If you've ever asked a group of people what revival looks like, what revival looks like, what I've found over the years, I've been a Christian now for 27 years, what I've found over the years is that they'll always describe to you Things like the Toronto blessing, if you've never part of that, what happened there? People falling down, people crawling around on the floor, guys walking around on all four, roaring like lions, people acting drunk, people falling out, tongues all over the place. They'll describe to you the form. Very rarely can they describe to you the function. That doesn't mean they don't know it. Please don't go where I'm not going. What I'm, what I'm trying to help you understand today is that we put far too much attention and value on the form, and we allow that form to divide us into camps. See, because I do this, and it looks like this, and it sounds like this, I am obviously more spiritual than you are. Because, see, when you're in your church service and you have worship, it only looks like this. You see, I can tell you're not really worshiping because there's no one dancing. There's no one falling out. There's not tongues and prophecies happening in your, in your room, uh, in, your, in, your, uh, in your sanctuary. So it's obvious that the Spirit's not here because your service doesn't look like mine. Which is complete and total nonsense. We put the emphasis on the form over the function. At the end of the day, 
no matter what your form of worship looks like or what form it takes, if you are honestly worshiping God in whatever, whatever type of music it is, I don't care if it's reggae, I'm sure there's got to be an acceptable way to worship God with reggae. I would love to find out. I don't think God cares. I think God is looking for worship from a pure heart, not a certain style. So long as we stay committed to the function, I don't think God is too concerned about the form. As long as that form is true, honest, devoted, and scripturally sound then we have no real reason to think of ourselves better or holier than another. Friends, what I would like to encourage you about today is when we see things through this book, like the spiritual gifts, I'd like, to cons- I'd like you to th- be thinking about what it is you see when you read those passages. We all know that when we read different things in the Bible, we see pictures in our mind of what we think that looks like. I would be willing to bet that if I asked Peter what revival looked like, on the day of Pentecost, I'm pretty sure the only thing he would say was 3,000 people came to know the Lord that day. I don't think he would give two two rips about what happened with tongues. I think his focus would be that 3,000 people were added to the kingdom of heaven that day. The rest of it is unnecessary. Our spiritual desires can take us a long way, but humility... And thinking others highly, more highly than ourselves is far more desirable. Check this out. Last piece of scripture, then I'm going to let you go. Romans 12, 3 through 5. says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one in body, in Christ, and individually members of one another. Don't think yourself too highly because you worship in one way and another group worships another. Don't think yourself too highly because you pray in tongues in this way, and other people don't. Don't think of yourself too highly because you might have prophecy in your services and another, another church doesn't. Don't think yourself too highly because you have this type of building and they have that type of building. Don't think of yourself too highly because your church likes this, uh, your church looks like this, and their church looks like that. Don't think yourself too highly because you think you've achieved something that really was simply given to you by the Lord. But make a point to view others more highly than you. So when you see people with another worship style, think to yourself, man, I want to learn how to worship like they do. When you see people engaging in spiritual activity that maybe you're not used to, find a way to value what they're doing. When you see something you don't necessarily have a clear comfort with, ask yourself very simply, is that serving a function of the body that maybe I'm not aware of? Open yourself up to that. I think this is very important for us. I think this is what sets us apart and actually brings us closer together. It allows us to come together in our commonality 
and keeps us from dividing over things that at the end of the day don't really matter. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for what you're continually doing in our lives and in this place. I want to thank you, Father, for your blessing. I want to thank you, Father, for the simple fact that your word gives us the ability to seek you in the way that seems right in our heart. Father, help us as we move forward in this year to be paying attention to the things that matter to you and not getting sidetracked on the details that don't really matter in the end. Help us to stay focused on what you want us to be focused on, Lord. Help us to stay focused on the function of our lives as believers and not get too wrapped up in the form that it may take in the lives of others. Help us to see the value in other people and not get lost in the details. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.